So uh, tonight, so last week we uh, kicked a series off, a series called Upside Down. What we're talking about is the upside downness, if that's a word, right? The upside downness of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? In the New Testament, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God all the time, left and right. That's just the phrase he uses. And when I was growing up, I particularly thought that, that the kingdom of God was only talking about heaven when you die. And I think certainly heaven is the kingdom, or the kingdom is, is heaven is included in that. But I think Jesus was, was sort of saying the kingdom is the realm where God has, has say over, the, the realm that God rules over, and that he was inviting us into that realm, that we can sort of live in, the, in God's kingdom, or we can live in, I don't know, our own kingdoms. We can live somewhere else. But he was sort of inviting us into that and saying, it's not just heaven when you die, although it certainly is that, but it's... It's life with God now. It's life in God's presence. It's life run the way God wants it to be run. It's, it's when you do what God says he wants you to do. It's where what God wants done is done. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, it's totally the opposite of the way the world works. That I said last week, the kingdom brings about the reversal of the world's values. That it's the reversal of values. It's completely upside down. It's not just at least strength to live according to the world's values. So, you go like, okay, well, what does that mean? Um, so, last week we looked at the end of Jesus' famous sermon, perhaps the most famous sermon that's ever been recorded, and it's found in Matthew 5 through 7. And uh, we looked at the end of it in Matthew 7, and Jesus basically said, if you were here, you know this, but basically said there's two ways to live. There's two kinds of people, but there's two ways to live. You know, we looked at all these illustrations. There's two trees. There's two houses. There is two kinds of fruit. There is two foundations. There's two different kinds of disciples. And what we talked about was we, we tend to think if there's just two ways to live, it's the good and the bad. That's our sort of default mode. The right way and the wrong way, the good and the bad. But rather, we said Jesus was basically saying the two kinds of people are those who think they can save themselves and those who know that only Jesus Christ can do it. But those are the only two kind of people there are. And he said, in fact, of the people that say they're trying to save themselves, there's many, many people in church every week, and there's many, many people that are very, very religious and that do a whole lot of good things that actually are trying to earn their own salvation, that are actually saving themselves. And so there's many, many people that look good and that look like a Christian, but maybe they're Pharisee types. And of course, there's many, many bad people that go, forget God, I want to do life my way. Um, but wide road, narrow road. So that was last week, though. Um, this week, we're heading to the book of Mark, to the gospel of Mark. And so this is just another um, teaching of Jesus that sort of brings about this like the reversal of values. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit more. But if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark 10, uh, 35 through 45. And this will be on the screens. So let me read this as well. Mark 10. This is uh, the situation. So then James and John, so these are two of Jesus' disciples, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, this is awesome, this question, or this statement. We want you, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Would not each one of us, if we were like following Jesus, we're all going to ask this question at some point, right? Like, Jesus, when you are president soon, when you win this election, I want you, like, will you just do for me whatever? It's, this is like the, the statement you would give to a genie in a bottle, which we've mentioned that, like, they, they were approaching him like this. Verse 36, he's like, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So like, give us the top two seats in your cabinet, Jesus. You're about to become president. This is awesome. 
you're going to overthrow Caesar or whoever, Romans. He says, 38, uh, verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten others, the ten disciples, heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them together and said this, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom, a ransom, a ransom for many. So that's what we're going to dive into. Now first, let me say this. Uh, so you maybe see where we're going here with the reversal of values and what that looks like here. But when I said that line just a minute ago, that the kingdom brings about the reversal of values, not just strength to live according to the world's values, if I was you, I was sort of thinking some of us might go, I don't know if I love that state, because some of us maybe go, Brad, like, this world just really isn't that bad. And the world's values, I get there's, like, some bad stuff in the world, but maybe some of you go, the world's values just aren't, aren't really that bad. Like, I, uh, I'm an American, I live here in Omaha, or in the whatever greater Omaha area, maybe you're from Trainer, Iowa. Um, but I have, I live here, I've got a warm home, I've got a nice home, uh, our family has money, I'm healthy, I'm free. I uh, have a good. Edu- I'm getting a good education. I have a job. Maybe um, like life's good. And so you, maybe you hear that statement and you go, "If if the kingdom values are the reversal of the world's values, I'm not even sure I want that. I don't even know if I care about the kingdom of God because honestly, like America's the greatest land ever, right? The, we have it pretty good. So I hear that, and yet I want to unpack for you. And I think many of you know what I'm saying when I say. Reversal of values. But here's a few, a few more things. This is a little bit of what I mean. Here are some of the benefits of life with God. So let me just a couple, list a couple of these off. You can write them down if you're taking notes or something. But number one, it brings us freedom from the world, that the world no longer scares us. That if you're a Christian, and again, if you're truly a Christian, as we talked about last week, if you're not just a self-righteous Pharisee, if your heart's right, if, you're, if, you, if Jesus is not just your example but your Savior, it brings us freedom from the world that we don't have to worry about terrorists, honestly. We don't have to worry about them, at least. There's still a problem, maybe, overseas, and who knows where they're at. We don't have to worry about death because we have hope. As a Christian, one of the greatest things you should have that I have is a true and lasting hope about our future, about our eternity. What is hope, right? It's confidence of, what we, of the future, of what's coming. It's sort of tied to faith. Our eternity is secured. Secondly, I would say this, it brings us freedom from guilt. Life in God's kingdom, life with God brings freedom from guilt. Doesn't mean we will never experience guilt, but we don't, we don't have to, we don't have to sit there. It's freedom from having to prove ourselves. It's freedom to have to worry about um, how we're acting or how we're behaving or how we're performing or about our salvation. Freedom from worrying if God loves us or not, because again, our eternity is secured. You know, I, last week, I hope I didn't put too much fear in some of you or make you feel like you lost your assurance because you're like, we looked at this passage where these people were doing a lot of miracles and a lot of good things, and 
Yet Jesus said, I don't even know you. But hopefully you go, I have freedom from guilt. Thirdly, it brings freedom to stop and rest. That we don't always have to keep striving and striving. And stri- Some of you maybe feel like if you really like jumped into Christianity, that it's like treadmill, and you just have to keep, like, keep your act clean, and you can never stop, you can never be real, you can never let your guard down. Why, though? Because the gospel is about what God did for you, not what you do for God. The gospel, Christianity, is not primarily about what you do for God. It at least starts with what God did for you, or this, it should bring freedom from bitterness and anger. Doesn't mean we won't sometimes get angry. Doesn't mean anger is an emotion. There's certain things that just elicit anger in us. But it should free, uh, bring us freedom, at least from bitterness, from frustration, from hatred and disdain of others. Freedom to forgive and to not hold, gr- hold grudges over others. You know that anger thing, even when you think of God's anger towards sin? Um, this is sort of just a side note, but I heard somebody recently mention this that um, anger is really not the opposite of love, is it? That the opposite of love is indifference, is not caring. But anybody, any child, like if somebody tried to do something to one of my children, I would like be thrown into a rage. I mean, I would just go after them however I could. I'd go after them swinging if I had to. If they tried to take my kid, an artist who has a masterpiece and somebody like comes at their artwork or their painting or whatever with a, with a knife, I don't, and it's like going to ruin it. When you get angry, it just shows like you're passionate about it, right? If you, have, if you have any relative or a dad or somebody with an anger problem, it's probably because they, like, they love their, their own way a little too much. And so what ha- we get angry when we don't have the, you know, anger is just a sign of something that we love is like being sort of taken away from us. Anyway, that's sort of a side note. But still, in general, we should begin to have freedom from bitterness and anger. But it's also the, Christian life is also not this. And life in the kingdom is, is also not this. It is not Princess Unikitty from the Lego movie. All right? We got a picture of, that it's not, how did I put it here? Jesus didn't just come to save a small group of individuals into a general state of happiness where everything's fine and everything's nice and I always have to stay positive because life is always happy. And I love the part when she goes, this feels like the opposite of happiness. Um, That's also not the Christian life, that it's not stuffing our feelings. And that's what the Pharisees did. They put on a great show on the outside that Jesus said, you're like, a, you're like a grave. You look really nice on the outside, whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, you're full of dead bones and grossness. But so it's not just stuffing our feelings. It's not just about staying positive. Jesus did not come to save some small group of individuals into a general state of happiness where just everything's fine. So uh, it's both of those things. There are tons of benefits of life with God and life in the kingdom. I said last week, Jesus came to bring heart change inside the tree, right? At the root, it produces different kinds of fruit underneath the house. But it's internal and it can't be seen most of the time. And so two, two people can sit in church side by side and do the very same things and they can have utterly different motives, right? And the one person, it could be all about themselves and they're just in for themselves. And the other person truly loves God has a heart for God, has devoted their life to God. Jesus is their Savior. And so when Jesus saves Christians, he saves us into church, like capital C church. He saves us into this group of people. What is the church? The church is, at least it's supposed to be, a loving and dynamic community that has a whole new attitude toward the world. 
That there's this whole new attitude where we have a mission and we serve and we're humble. And so God saves us in the church. So, for example, there's a wonderful summary of the gospel and of this passage I just read in Mark in the book of Titus. You don't have to turn there, but pop this up on the screens real quick. Titus 2, in, in primarily verse 14, but I'm going to give you the context. So this is what uh, Paul writes to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Again, not everyone in this earth will be saved, but salvation is offered to everybody. We know not everybody chooses it. We read that in the Bible, and we know that maybe just from everyday life. But it has offered salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But here's verse 14. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, why? To redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So question and answer time real quick. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Why did Jesus come to this earth? According to this passage, he came to this earth for two reasons. Number one, to redeem us, to ransom us, to pay for all of our wickedness. That's one reason he came. He says, to redeem us from all wickedness. And secondly, number two, to purify for himself a people, the church, his group of followers, the Christians, true Christians on this earth, eager to do what is good. And what is good, back in Matthew, to be servants, right? The Matthew 10 says, whoever wants to become great, you want to be great? You want to be a servant? Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Do you want to be on top? Do you want to come in first place? Do you want to be like, you know, do you want to be the greatest in this world? Jesus says, be the last. Be a servant. And again, some of us get that. We just, we've read this our whole lives. So we know that. But others of us go, man, I really, I want to be like, I want to be rich. I want to have prestige and fame. I want to be, I want to be famous. I want to be popular. And Jesus says, be the, be the slave of all. So what does that look like? It's upside down in the kingdom of God, okay? That's what we're talking about throughout this whole series. It's the reversal of values. The first need to be last. You want to be first? Be the last. And you know what else? If you do make it to the top of the world, according to the world's values, what may happen is you will very likely be empty. Because why is it, and this is maybe an over, why is it that so many actors and actresses and famous people and celebrities and members of bands and artists and all these people. Why do so many make it to the top and uh, either commit suicide, many of them? Or you know tons of celebrities that have drug addictions, just like major, major addiction problems, are always in and out of rehab, literally have four to five to six, seven, eight marriages in their lifetime? Did you think you make it to the top by our world standards and you'll be happy? I don't think so. I mean, maybe it's awesome because you have all this money and you have this great house. You have a house like Tiger Woods' house. Have you seen pictures of this thing? And yet, it seems like some of these people, they're just miserable. And they don't have fun or they can't even go out and like, they can't go out in public without being mobbed. And so we think about that. Jesus says, if you get to a place of authority someday, don't lord it over people. Be a servant leader. And so what does that mean? How does life with God turn us into humble servants? Well, again, the key here, I just read it in Titus 14. He used the word redeem, that Jesus came to redeem us. But here in Mark 10, the last verse, verse 45, he says he came not to, not to be served, but to serve, but to give his life as a 
ransom. I want to talk to you a little bit about this word ransom and how inextricably linked this ransom thing is to our servanthood and why it's the key to us being servants. So real quick, I'm going to talk about what does it mean that Jesus came to be a ransom for us? And we're going to talk real, uh, a little bit about servanthood. So first, what does it mean that Jesus came to be a ransom for many? What, what do you think of? What do you guys think of? Somebody shout something out. What's the first word you think of when you hear the word ransom? Money, bail, kidnapping. That's what I was sort of thinking of. That was the first thing that came to my mind. But totally money. There's, there's a price. Um, maybe you think about the movie Taken. Have you seen the movie Taken? I'm not endorsing it. I don't want to talk too much about it, but I've seen it, and it's mildly terrifying. I think it's only PG-13, but some of you have seen this movie. Um, I think of terrorists, maybe, kidnappers, money. Uh, like I think I've mentioned before, sometimes my wife and I are so lame that we, on a Friday night, will sit at home and watch Dateline. We don't even have cable. And so Dateline is one of these news shows, or 2020 is sort of like that. And sometimes there's these stories of American, uh, usually young girl, but this one gal was a reporter overseas, and terrorists find these Americans and just kidnap them because they know that some American can fork out inordinate amounts of money to pay for this girl to get her back. Um, if that's what you think of when you hear this word, ransom, like that's totally right. Um, absolutely right. It's very, very closely related to the word redeem. In fact, um, it's the same root word in, in the Greek. Uh, it means to buy back in the Greek. It's this word lutron or uh, lutro, which means to loosen. So throughout history, in many contexts, it basically meant you know, to loosen the chains, to unchain somebody. But it means to buy back. Kidnapping is right. Uh, this word means buying somebody out of captivity, to ransom, to redeem. Again, maybe you, even, you redeem a coupon. There's an exchange, and um, the coupon is worth you know, five bucks off or thing. But take this, someone gets kidnapped, right? And the kidnappers say, the ransom for this person is $100,000. They're saying, you have to buy this person back. You want to see that girl again? Your daughter? Your son? You have to redeem them. And in this case, it would cost you this incredible amount. Ransom is a cost, you guys. Ransom is a price. Ransom is an amount. And it's substitutionary in character. A substitution that affects freedom from, cat from captivity, free from bondage, and, um, and so that's what it means. We're in bondage to something, and you and I know, most of you know, we're in bondage to sin, and until we realize that we're in bondage to sin, none of this really matters. This whole topic, we go, who cares about a Savior? I, Jesus meets no need in my life unless I realize that I'm a Savior, but you and I, we're in bondage, we're enslaved, right? So I was thinking of this this week. We're enslaved to at least three things. Number one, I said this, self with a capital S. We're enslaved to self. That we have deep, deep, me too. We have deep ingrained selfishness. Each one of us do. We're narcissistic sometimes. We can't stop focusing on ourselves, and it's not the way God made us to be, but we're, we're enslaved to self. Secondly, we're enslaved to idols. And this could be anything, and we talk about idols all the time at Oasis, right? Maybe even too much. But your real God is your performance at school academically. Your real God is trying to meet your parents' expectations, and they weigh upon you because your parents just have crazy high expectations for you. Or it's your performance on the basketball court, or on the baseball field, or in swimming, or in soccer, or whatever your sport is, or on the, in the theater, or what chair you get in the band, like what chair you play, whatever. 
your real God is something or someone other than God. We all have these false saviors. And immediately we could say, it's this me. Some of it is secretive, and nobody even knows we have that God, but it's sort of there. Or thirdly, um, the law. You go, I'm not a slave to the law. But what, what I mean by that is your conscience, that we're enslaved. Your conscience condemns you, that you're not living up to God's standards, maybe, or you're not living up to your parents' standards, or you're not living up to your own standards. And that kills you. Something that you have done in your past, you feel so guilty or so ashamed, or maybe it's not something you've done, but maybe it's something that was done to you. And so we're in bondage. We need to be ransomed. We need to be redeemed. But as soon as we realize that Jesus has come to redeem us, as soon as we realize that he's paid the ransom for our lives, that he's paid that price for us, that turns us into servants. And so secondly, here's my question. How does Jesus' ransom give us a whole new purpose in life, give us a whole new mission? How does it turn us into servants. What we see is because of the depth of what Jesus Christ did for you and for me, not by paying money, not by paying $100,000, but by paying with his own blood, with his own flesh and blood, by like fully dying, we're freed from self because we have more honor from God than our ego could want in a hundred lifetimes. There is more honor that God pours out on you that he loves and accepts you, that you should be totally freed from yourself, that we are so, we can get so fixated, like I said, on ourselves. We're worried or mad because somebody snubbed us or because they said something to us, because, um, because somebody didn't ask you out, because somebody is ignoring you, because somebody, I know, somebody's being a jerk to you, but we're so fixated on ourselves, and yet Jesus ransomed us from ourselves. He's given us more honor than our egos should ever, it should just blow us away. We're fine. We should be fine. We should be freed, and we should be, we should be able to forget about ourselves. You're freed from idols, if you understand what Jesus did for you. You're freed from the law, if you're melted by his ransom for you. You don't have to worry so much about your own conscience. Again, you don't have to feel guilty or ashamed. You can forgive. You're complete in him. So if this is true, if it's true that you really are completely ransomed out of bondage and freed from yourself and freed from idols and freed from the law, it makes us servants. It changes your attitude about yourself. It changes your attitude about others. That you're like, you're not so fixated on your own schedule that you can't pause to go help somebody out who needs help. And you don't necessarily even need thanks. You don't need to be repaid that you can do something for your parents without asking for an allowance for it. You're free to love and to serve others. You're no longer governed by selfishness. We don't need to be. So this is crazy. Back in Matthew 10, when James and John in the passage, they didn't get this yet, right? When they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, do for us whatever we ask, they totally are being selfish, right? And when they come to him and say, hey, you're about to be elected, whatever, like king, right? And we want your top seats. They totally were saying, like, honestly, we want power. We want prestige. Jesus, we want to be at your right hand. We want to be your right hand men. And Jesus stops, because the other guys got ticked, right? The other disciples are indignant. They're like, what do you, and Jesus goes, no, no, you guys totally don't even get it. You can be set free from your selfishness. He says, those seats, I'm not even, it's not my call. 
but he's, he turns it into a, a teaching moment for them. Like, you guys don't even get this. This is, I don't know, again, where this is at, year two, the beginning of year, halfway through ministry. And Jesus says, you guys need to learn. If you want to be first, be last. Put it this way. Say somebody saved your life. Say you were in a horrific car accident. Some of you are learning to drive. Some of you are maybe going through driver's ed right now. Some of you, uh, you don't even want to drive because in Omaha it's scary. You're a sophomore, but you're putting it off because, I don't know, maybe it's scary. So say you get into a crazy car accident and you, um, uh, like a firefighter comes along and he frees you and you got unstuck, but somehow for some reason the firefighter like, got stuck in the car. Got your seatbelt off, got you out, but there was drink gasoline, and he was in there, and he could make it out before it exploded, right? What if he lived, but he was very, very badly burned? This guy rescues you. You're free. You're fine. Like, you are fine. A couple scratches, a couple nicks. But now he's paying for it. He, he was your rescuer. That was his job, right? He's a firefighter. But he ransomed you. What would you do to repay that person? You'd want to do anything you could, right? But you can't really do much, right? The damage has been done. He's in the hospital. Maybe he lost a leg or something. But what if that firefighter said to you, you know what, I want you to go and rescue others. Would you go and just serve others? Would you pay this forward? You can't do anything for me, but I want you to go and be a servant. I want you to rescue others however that happens, however you can do that. You know what you would do? You would say, I will gladly do that. I will gladly do whatever I possibly can to pay this forward. I will go out and serve others. It's the least I can do. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ tells us to do too. He says, I've come to ransom you. And so you know what? Because of that, go out and serve. And don't just serve, become servants. Become the kind of people that you can't pay me. And he died. And then three days later, he comes back to life. He's, he's risen from the dead. And now he's sitting at the right hand of the throne. But he's, we owe everything to him. He paid our death penalty for us. You go, oh, good for him. Dead for three days and back again. But we wouldn't do that. Like, he paid our death penalty. What, what your sin and what my sin deserves. That someday that will happen. Each one of us will face a judgment. And if we don't have the blood of Jesus to, like, call out to... We're doomed, right? And our friends are doomed. Or other people out there are doomed. But he paid the price for us. And so what he says to us is go become servants. Don't power up over people. Don't lord it over people. Don't bully people. When you're in a position of leadership at your job, at Chick-fil-A, or at Pizza Machine, or at the grocery store, or wherever you work, at a coffee shop, if you happen to have people under you, or at school, Treat every person with kindness and with respect and with dignity. Even the people who look different than you or who are a different race or different ethnicity or who you don't particularly like because they're annoying. Treat them with respect. Serve them somehow. Look out for them. That can come out explicitly in your actions or sometimes because all you have is a few words with them. It can come out implicitly just by your attitude. But even your attitude can like mean the world to somebody. Maybe you don't have time. Maybe they don't need anything in the moment. But just in a few words that you exchange with them, you can show them an attitude of servanthood. Jesus says from his hospital bed, as it were, what you owe me, do for them. What you owe to me, go and do it to others. 
He says, be humble servant leaders. And as I said, that's a whole new attitude. It's completely reversed of the way the world thinks. The world says it's about me, and I'm going to first, and I need to be first, and I'm going to look out for me, and I'm going to get mine. Forget the guy behind me. But Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Whoever wants to become great must be your servant. He paid the price for your ransom. He paid the price to buy you back. And it was a costly price. And so what do we do with this? It's Christmas. It's the season of giving. And so you guys know to serve. We all get that. I think the real question is, why do we serve? We don't just serve because we have to. We, we, don't, just serve because we, have, we don't just serve because the Bible tells us to. But because somebody paid a price. Paid a ransom for us. And that changes everything for the Christian. 